0: To the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated, and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcasts at nlutheranpodcast.com. You can also subscribe on Podbeam, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric, or would like to suggest topics for our podcast, you can email Pastor Eric at eric E-R-I-K, E-R-I-K Dot Anderson at NL Our scripture this morning comes from the Book of John, the twentieth and twenty first chapter. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just about daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. Now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, "'Bring some of the fish that you have just caught.' So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, "'Come and have breakfast.' Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, "'Who are you?' Because they knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish.' This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to disciples after he was raised from the dead. Well, before Instagram, and before Snapchat, and before Facebook, and even before text messaging, there was the fax machine. And if you lived in the 90s, you knew this amazing marvel of technology really kind of blew your mind for a short period of time before all that other stuff came. And you remember very distinctly that noise that the fax machine made when you sent off a message or received a message. Or when you called somebody who was using their fax machine, you heard that horrible, 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 shrill noise because you found out, oh no, I called the fax number instead of their house. So for all of you in the 90s, you grew up, you know the noise, share it with the younger generation, right? Find it online, Google it, let them know how awful that sound was and how they should be so happy they'll never have to experience that in their lifetime. But in 1995, there was a fax message that actually was sent to Chicago that changed the conversation in the world. On March 18th in 1995, this message arrived in Chicago and it simply said, I'm back. Now for all you sports fans, you know who sent this message, Right? Michael Jordan announced to the Bulls through his fax machine that he was going to step back into the NBA. And if you've been around Chicago, or really you've lived on planet Earth, you know this about Michael Jordan. He retired at the top of his game. After three championships in a row, being the best player the world has ever seen and definitely saw in that generation, he decided to quit. And he walked away, he retired, and he went to play baseball for 18 months. Well, all of a sudden, after that time, after that whim, he was back. And when he stepped back into the scene, Chicago rejoiced. And the reverberations of that went through the entire world because Michael Jordan is a global entity, right? He's a global celebrity. Everyone wanted to see what he could do again. But there was a lot of questions. I mean, he had been playing baseball. He hadn't picked up a basketball. He wasn't practicing. Could he still do it? And during that time, the NBA had changed, right? There was new young talent and new teams had won a championship. If he came back, could he still do it? And there was a fear that maybe he would just be a shadow of himself. Maybe if he came back, he might actually destroy his legacy instead of build his legacy. Well, over the past number of weeks, we've been working through a series called Proof. And we've been talking about another comeback story. We've been talking about Christ who died on the cross and rose again and came back and there were so many questions. There were so many questions about what was going on. I mean, was the story true? Did he really come back? And then there was the other questions. Was he still who he was before? Or did death do something to him? Was he going to be the fully Jesus that we remember, the great teacher and the miracle worker? Or was he going to be somehow less than that? Well, in the book of John, we're going to get the answer to this. We're going to see how John was fully convinced that Jesus not only was back, but that he was exactly like he was before, that he was fully restored, that death did not do anything to him. So today we're going to look at John's gospel writing, and John was a very, very close friend to Jesus, probably his closest friend. They were very, very close. Many times John writes that Jesus loved him, a very distinct way of saying that they were very, very, very close. And John was fully convinced that Jesus had made a full comeback, that Jesus wasn't just a shadow of himself, that he was the real deal, and he had overcome death, and death did not leave a scrape on him. So John decided to write. He began to write down his story of what had happened, his experiences with Christ, and he penned them down in his biography that we now call a gospel, right? The Gospel of John. And this is what he writes. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So John starts off, he's setting the stage for what we're going to be talking about, which is miracles, right? He said, as I wrote this book, I wrote many of the miracles, many of the premier miracles that Jesus did, but I didn't write them all. I mean, there were so many And this is what John knew. First of all, he knew that writing a book in that time was very, very, very expensive. And so every page mattered. Every word mattered. Every letter was going to cost him something. And so he wanted to put in the stories that he thought were going to be the premier stories, the stories that would convince an unbelieving world of something unbelievable, that they could have faith as well. And so he was very, very cautious about what he put in there because of the cost. But he also knew this that if he just put in all the stories, that he only had to put in so many stories for people to believe. And that even if he wrote 10 stories or 20 stories, it didn't matter the amount of stories, it mattered the posture of the heart of the people reading it. He knew that if he put 100 stories or or 50 stories, it wasn't going to matter if someone had a heart that wasn't going to believe. And so he wrote down these stories for us. And this is why he wrote them. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. So right away, he gets very, very clear. This is why I wrote these down. And this is why Jesus did these miracles. He did these miracles not just to simply be nice, even though there was some really positive outcomes. I mean, people were healed. Paralyzed people were healed. Hungry people were fed. I mean, a a lot of good came out of it. But his primary purpose, his primary hope, was that people would believe. And through that belief, that they would experience the transformation that he had to offer. Not only in this life, but the eternal. That they would begin a relationship with God in this life, in this proof, through these miracles, that that relationship would start in this moment and continue all the way through eternity. But he also wanted them to experience transformation in this life. And that's why Jesus showed up, and that's why Jesus taught. He spoke about all sorts of topics. and people heard that truth, when they internalized that truth, when they lived out that truth, they would experience transformation in the present as well. Well, John is leading up. John is leading us up to not only the point of miracles, but he's going to lead us to a very significant proof, a very significant miracle that he experienced with his friends. And this is what he writes. After these things... Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. Now, this is about eight days after the resurrection, and a lot has happened in these eight days. And what has happened is Jesus keeps showing up time and time again to prove to people that he's back, that he's made his comeback, that he's real. And it starts on Easter morning. Easter morning, these ladies show up to the tomb. The stone is rolled away. They find an empty tomb. They encounter angels who tell them he's not here. He's risen, he's alive, he's back. And so they go and tell the disciples. And after sharing their story, the disciples, these close friends of Christ, guess what? They don't believe. I mean, this story, for them, it's unbelievable. And so they dismiss the ladies as being hysterical. Well, some of those disciples, beyond the 12, the other followers of Christ were there too. And many of them were beginning to give up. I mean, they had heard the prediction. Jesus said he would be back on Sunday. And the day's day was waning, like time was running out. And they said, we're going to go home. Well, a couple of them, Cleopas and Simeon, lived in Emmaus. And so they started heading home, right? They had given up hope. They were done with this Jesus. They thought they had wasted a lot of time and a lot of energy believing in something that probably wasn't true. And so they start walking home. Along the way, Jesus walks up. And they don't realize it's Christ because... Why would you expect a dead guy to be walking next to you, right? Without context, it makes no sense. And Jesus engages with them, he teaches them, and he sits down with them at their house, and he breaks bread, just like he'd done so many times. And when he did that, it opened up their eyes. They saw him in context, and they realized that it was Christ. He actually made his comeback. And so they got off from their house, and they went all the way back to Jerusalem in the late, late evening, and they made their way to the disciples, And they told their story. Jesus is back. We saw him. He broke bread. He's real. He's alive. You guys, I know you don't believe it, but it's true. And the disciples, once again, did not believe. And in the midst of this conversation, in the midst of this doubt, Jesus shows up in their midst. He arrives, and he shows them he's actually back. And they begin to believe. They begin to actually think that this is actually a real thing, that Jesus actually came back. But Thomas wasn't there. We now call him Doubting Thomas. He's probably just like the rest of us, but Thomas wasn't there. And so Jesus once again comes back the second time with the disciples, this time when Thomas is there. And when Thomas arrives and when they're all there, there's this understanding or there's this thought that Jesus was a ghost. They thought, oh, he's back, but is he really back? Is he really back like anyone else returned? I mean, what has death done to him? See, their logical conclusion in that moment is that maybe he was just a ghost, right? He had died, he came back, his spirit was visiting. I mean, that seems unbelievable, but they thought it was more believable than him physically coming back. And so Jesus proves to all them by eating. He proves to them that he's not a ghost, he's actually fully human. But they still have some doubts. They still have some doubts about this guy. Yeah, he maybe is back in his humanity, but can he still do the miracles? Can he do all of these things? And it's in these doubts that the disciples find themselves by the Sea of Tiberias. And you've heard of this sea before, whether you realize it or not. You've probably heard of it called the Sea of Galilee, or in one section of scripture, it's called the, the Lake of Gennesaret. And this is what happens at this body of water. And he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together with Simon Peter, Thomas called the Twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. So we see seven of the 11 disciples, they're there hanging out by this body of water. But we're really going to focus on on three of them this morning. We're going to focus on Peter and James and John, which were the sons of Zebedee in this passage. And the reason we're focusing on these guys is because they were fishermen. And specifically, they did their fishing here at the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Gennesaret. And this is what happens. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. So Simon Peter is kind of on an interesting journey. If you remember a number of days before this, Jesus told them, when I die, when I am taken captive, you will deny me three times. And Peter's like, there's no way I will deny you. But Christ's prediction comes true. And Peter, in his fear, denies Christ three times. The most egregious thing that you can do to a friend, the most egregious thing that you can do to your Lord is saying, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And Peter and Jesus, they haven't had this conversation yet. They haven't been fully restored, at least in, in Peter's mind. So he has some concerns. He has some fears. His natural posture is thinking that if I deny Jesus, he'll deny me. If I deny Jesus, he's going to kick me out of the disciples. So Peter is, is really creating in his mind some other options, right? A contingency plan for his life. I used to be a fisherman. Maybe I should step back into that area. Maybe I should consider fishing again. And So he gets these guys together, and he's kind of testing the waters. He brings his friends along and says, let's go fishing, and they all join him. And this is what happens. They went out and got into the boat, but that night... They caught nothing. So poor Peter, he's trying to figure out life. He's really struggling. He goes out and does what he used to do, and he's a huge failure. I mean, he caught absolutely nothing when they were out there. But this happens next. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So in the midst of their fishing expedition, Jesus shows up, he's standing on the beach and we're going to find out later, he's about a hundred yards from the boat. And so a pretty good distance enough that they can see there's a person there. They can probably figure out that it's a man, but they actually can't see all the features, right? They can't actually figure out that it's Jesus. Well, Jesus begins to engage with them. And he says this, children, you have no fish, have you? And so they heard across the water, this person yelling at them, right? Do you have fish? Do you have fish? Do you have fish? And they're probably thinking, he thinks that we're fishing to sell fish, right? And maybe some of them were, I have no idea. And so they respond, no, right? We've been fishing all night. We've gotten skunked. We have failed. We have no fish for you, sir. Please stop bothering us. Well, Jesus continues, cast the net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now, when you hear these words, if you've been in church for a while, you know that this has happened before. In fact, what's about to take place happened exactly like this about three years before this. And what was taking place was Peter at that time was a fisherman, right? This is your flashback moment. Peter was a fisherman. John was a fisherman. James was a fisherman. This is what they did. This is all that they did. And here they were. At that point in time, three years before this, on the same body of water, the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, Lake Gennesaret, and Jesus, who was beginning his ministry, was teaching by them. As they were cleaning up their boats and mending their nets and preparing to go home and go to bed and start the next day, Jesus was teaching, and a crowd was gathering, and they were probably listening to him as he was sharing his stories and and talking about truth and all these things. And as they heard it, they probably got a little bit curious. Well, after he was done, he makes his way over to Peter and says, Peter, how would your fishing go? And Peter says, we didn't catch anything. And Jesus says, why don't you go back out and give it another try? Now, this is unsolicited advice from a non-fisherman to a professional fisherman. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't probably receive this too well. I'd probably say, buddy, you're a teacher, you go teach, but this is my domain. Don't worry about fishing. But Peter actually says, okay. So Peter listens, goes out, and he puts the nets down, just like Jesus said, and he catches so many fish, it says, that his boat begins to sink and his nets begin to break. These are professional grade fishing tools, right? This is a catch like he has never experienced in his entire life. Everything is falling apart. So he calls his buddies. James and John, come help me because we're about to lose the boats, we're about to lose the nets, and we're about to lose all this money from losing all these fish. So his buddies come out, they help him, they haul in this massive load, and it's so miraculous that in that moment, Peter recognizes that Jesus is very, very special. In fact, he calls him Lord and he falls down on his face. He's convinced that this guy is somehow amazingly connected, or maybe is God in the flesh. Well, fast forward three years. There's a stranger on the shore yelling these same commands. Toss the net back in. Right? You guys are professional fishermen or ex-professional fishermen, but I want you to toss the net back in. Now, this guy is standing 100 yards from where they are. He can't see what's going on. He can't tell. But despite that, they listen. So they cast it. And now they were not able to it in because there were so many fish. You see, Jesus was doing a repeat performance. Jesus was showing these guys that he not only had made a comeback, but he was exactly like he was. He wasn't a shadow of himself. He was still fully able to do whatever he wanted to do. And this is their response. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes for he was naked and jumped into the sea. So it's John, the writer of this book, that first recognizes it, right? He makes the correlation because he was there for the first time this happened. He was there for the first miracle. He had watched their ships sink. He had watched them fail all night, not fishing. He had experienced the weight of the fish in his nets the first time. And when he experienced it again, he instantly knew what was going on. It's Jesus. It's Jesus doing the exact same thing that he did before. And then there's Peter's response, which this is amazing. Because it shows the growth in Peter's life. Because the first time Peter experienced this, his concern was about his boats. His concern was about his nets. His concern was about the profit of the fish that he was pulling out of the water. But this time, look what he does. He throws on a cloak. He jumps in the water. He swims away from everything. The boat. The boat the nets, the money associated with the fish. He puts all of his focus on Christ and leaves everything behind. And this is what happens next. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about 100 yards off. So the other disciples, they're there struggling with the fish, right? Trying to get the boats back, trying to get the nets back. They're doing all this stuff. Luckily, they're not all that far, away from the shore. So they make their way back, and this is what they arrived to. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Now, this could be explained away, right? There, there could be a likelihood that Jesus arrived with a, a full-blown fire and fish and bread for some reason. But I believe this Christ is doing something way more significant here. You see, there was other disciples between Peter, James, and John. They had experienced a miracle in their lifetime that actually connected them into the fellowship of Christ, connected them into the, this process of discipleship with Christ. And so this was a repeat performance for them. But for the rest of these guys, this was the first time they experienced it. So when they arrive, I believe Jesus is doing something very significant for them as well. It gave them proof as well that he's fully back, that he's not only just fully human again, but he's still fully God, that he can do everything that he wants to do. I believe he's, he's showing up again and showing off again. And he pulls out of thin air, in my assessment, bread and fish. Now, the reason he would do this is because the other disciples had experienced other moments in Christ's life when he'd taken two very simple elements, right? The fish and the bread. And what did he do? He multiplied them for the masses. Right? He did these amazing things to prove to people that he was God. And once again, he's stepping in. And proving to these disciples, which were so important to convince of the unbelievable, the bearers of the news that he was completely back. This is what happens next. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. So, once again, Peter goes out, they grab all the tools, and this time something amazing happens. Even though there's 153, and that number is only significant because what they're telling you is that this amount of fish should have destroyed the nets. And so, these professional fishermen who knew the capacity of their nets were experiencing once again another miraculous movement of Christ. That these nets that should have torn, these nets that tore the first time this happened, now were perfect still. Well, the story continues. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. You see, these disciples were real people with real doubts. They're wondering if Christ was truly back. They're wondering if if Christ was, was more than a ghost. They're wondering if Christ could still do what he was able to do before. But when they saw this, They're convinced. They didn't even need to ask. They knew who it was because he did exactly what Christ did before his death. And then John closes with this. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So three times up until this point, Jesus keeps showing up and showing up and showing up and showing up because this is what he knows. These are real people with real doubts just like us. And he knows that at this point in time, Christianity is a house of cards. That one of those doubts and one of those concerns, if it was true, the whole thing would crumble. If he wasn't fully human, it would crumble. If he hadn't fully made a comeback, it would crumble. If he couldn't do what he was able to do before, the whole thing was done. The story was done. There are no books written. There is no faith. There is no churches. There's no New Life Lutheran. But it's from that house of cards that Jesus showed up time and time and time again. And for these disciples, did miracles that he had done before to prove to them that they didn't just have faith in a hope or faith in a feeling, Or even faith in faith. They had faith in fact. And Christ turned that house of cards into a fortress of faith. You see, this is what we learn in our scripture this morning. Is that we have a faith that couldn't survive a diminished Jesus. If Jesus was somehow less than he was before, we wouldn't be here. If Jesus was just a human guy who somehow made it through death and, and was, was scathed and broken but, but barely survived, we wouldn't be here. But Jesus showed up and showed off and showed every one of these disciples that he had made a complete comeback and it solidified their faith. And these guys were the messengers of Christ's message and they went to their death proclaiming this truth because they were fully convinced That they had a faith in fact. That they had faith in proof. And they would have conversations with each other. And they would talk about these stories. And they were fully convinced, as they would say, he is risen. And the other ones who had these same experiences, these, these real moments with Christ, would say, he is risen indeed. Because they had proof that Jesus had made a comeback.